Bill Maris was the most unlikely candidate for the job. He was a young entrepreneur living in Vermont, of all places, with limited investing experience. Yet in 2008, he got the opportunity of a lifetime. Google co-founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page tapped him to start a venture capital fund. One year later, Google Ventures, now called GV, was born. Since then, the investment arm of Google's parent company, Alphabet, has become one of the most active VC firms in Silicon Valley, with $2.4 billion to spend, and investments in over 300 companies, including Uber, Nest, and Slack. Bill Maris may be best known for his quest for immortality and sometimes saying things that irk other people in Silicon Valley. We'll talk about all that here, but of course, it's not all there is to the story. Joining me today on Studio 1.0 for Bloomberg, Bill Maris, GV CEO. Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You were handpicked by Larry and Sergey to start Google's venture capital arm in 2008. And at the time, you were a young entrepreneur yourself. You had limited investing experience. You had no clout in Silicon Valley. What were those early years like? Handpicked implies a, like a, a, a level of like specialness. I mean, I was sitting at a, uh, a, sh a shared office space at a desk in corporate development, sitting next to a corporate development intern uh, who turned out to be Kevin Systrom, who, who founded was Instagram. Developing Instagram right? at the time. But at the time, we were just trying to figure out what are we going to do here. And uh, I certainly wasn't picked for my clout or experience. I think. In part, uh, my lack of experience in the venture business was, has led us to develop a sort of unique model. The story goes that you were going up and down Sand Hill Road, knocking <laughs> on doors, trying to get people to take you seriously. I think my career has been a progression of not being taken seriously and volunteering for jobs that I was not qualified for. That's just kind of the story. And at the time, I did go uh, from firm to firm to say, here's what I'm thinking, we're thinking of doing. And some took us very seriously and gave great advice and still do to this day. And some literally laughed at the idea. Who laughed at you? Uh, I'm not going to name <laughs> names, but they know who they are. And they're probably not laughing anymore. Uh, bec and, but I understand why they did, because I had no experience. Uh, Google didn't have a real track record as a venture investor. And so it, it seemed uh, out of the ordinary uh, to have someone like me come and say, we're going to start a venture fund. So what prepared you for that? Where did you grow up? What kind of kid were you? Um, I grew up reading Michael Crichton novels, watching Star Wars and Star Trek, taking apart any toy that I was given, uh, much to my parents' chagrin. Uh, if it was electronic, it I would disassemble it and put, try and put it back together, about a 50% success rate there, uh, and got really interested in computers and uh, computer games and, uh, and imagination and storytelling and all those kinds of things kind of all coalesced into me actually wanting to be an animator when I was growing up. I thought I would, because uh, uh, I thought you can create any kind of world you want, and so I would draw a lot and thought, well, this seems like an interesting career. And, uh, but you majored in neuroscience. I just found the subject matter really interesting and uh, pursued it and graduated and decided I, I didn't want to become a doctor and, and stumbled into uh, a bunch of things, one of which was a startup and eventually here to GV. You did neuroscience research at Duke. You went on to manage a biotech portfolio at, a, at an investment bank. And it just so happened that in 1997, the person sitting next to you was Ann Wojcicki. Yes, Ann Wojcicki was, this is before Google even existed. We were office mates, and we became fast friends and have been friends ever since. And um, at the time, she told me about some friends 
that were in her sister's garage. Right, so hang on. Anne Wojcicki went on to marry Sergey Brin, mm -hmm. the co-founder of Google. She's also co-founder of 23andMe. Mm -hmm. And she told you about Google, but you, you were like, ah, Yahoo's, well, she told Yahoo's, me about Google. Yahoo's good enough. <laughs> I have a search engine. <laughs> and here are these two kind of Stanford dropouts that are starting this, uh, uh, this company. But it wasn't attractive because I had a path I was on, and I wanted to see where it would lead. You went on. You were in Vermont. You started mm -hmm. a company, yep. a web company. You sold it. Uh, there was a lot that happened in between. I, uh, you know, slept under my desk, ate a lot of canned foods, was you know making payroll uh, with my credit card, and then March of 2000, when the market crashed, it wasn't worth anything to anyone. Uh, so we kind of had to see it through that period, and ended up selling the company in 2002, 2003 to Web.com. So then ultimately, you ended up back at Google. Anne and Sergey were insistent that I should move to California uh, because that's where the future is. Uh, they introduced me to David Drummond and to Eric, and uh, over the course of, I would say, 19, I think, interviews, something on that order, uh, uh, they decided, okay, Bill, we're going to ask you to start looking into this. There was no checkbook given or anything like that. What should we do in venture? And so I spent about six months thinking about um, different models and how it might work. Uh, and then part of my job was we hired a recruiting firm to find the head of Google Ventures. It wasn't going to be me. I didn't mm -hmm. think it was going to be me. And, uh, but as I interviewed people for that role, I discovered the thing that I discovered when I sat next to Anne and we were talking to people who were pitching us companies, that nobody knows anything. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, well, the people I'm talking to to start this fund, they don't know anything about Google. And it doesn't seem like they have any special knowledge about th these technology companies. And so I just volunteered and said, well, I'd like to give it a try. So you rebranded from Google Ventures to GV. Was that an attempt to sort of distance yourself from the Google name? No, I think it was. People called us GV anyway, so it was kind of the easiest thing. But since you have this alphabet structure with Google, Verily, Nest, mm -hmm. GV, to call it Google Ventures would kind of mislead in the way that we wouldn't call it Verily Ventures. It's, it's broader than that. It's not a Google service. Um, so. We tried a thousand, literally, we, we brainstormed a thousand or so different names, and we just thought GV was the most obvious evolution. What is the relationship now between GV and Alphabet? It's the same as it was between GV and Google before this. It's, uh, we have a, um, it's a separate entity. Uh, I'm the, now the CEO of uh, GV, but we make our investments in whatever we like. Uh, so they have no access to the information about startup strategy or details on No, they have a similar kind of access to information that any limited partner would get in terms of financial information, et cetera. But I've got no incentive to share details about what a startup is doing as, as I would with Intel versus Google versus Facebook. It, it, you know, our job is to generate returns and help the companies grow. So in the world of venture, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Benchmark, those are king. Those are the firms that entrepreneurs lust after. Do you ever still feel like you're that guy on Sand Hill Road trying to convince people oh, to go with Google? I think imposter syndrome is, is, like, is a key <laughs> uh, element of many uh, uh, people's personalities, and mine, you know, I'm no exception because um, you're only as good as your next few investments. I think that insecurity comes up a lot. It never bothered me that people took us seriously or not. 
I think it's more important if we take ourselves seriously because we're trying to do something that hadn't been done before. One of the things you're really focused on is trying to extend human life. How much progress have you actually made there? So this sounds very mad scientist, <laughs> as if I have like a garage where I have like bubbling beakers and, and it isn't so much about extend, extending life. It's sort of like if you set the goal, like we want to land on the moon, but you start by saying, but we can't land on the moon, well then you'll probably never get there. And so the idea of extending life is more about can we live vigorous, healthy lives, get more life out of our years, uh, and more years out of life. In terms of the actual progress that you've made, what have you made? Wait, where are you? Yeah, I guess I would say I don't make progress. We invest in companies that do the work. On one level, we're making great progress. We're able to develop diagnostics now. Uh, so the Human Genome Project took 10 years and four or five billion dollars to sequence one genome. Now you can do that in an hour on a machine that fits on this table. Mm -hmm. um, now we can look at the genome and find places where we see errors. Well, the diagnostic comes first and the, the, the therapies come after that. Uh, and so now we're moving to a place where companies like Editas, a company we invested in, public company now, uh, can, uh, it's a CRISPR gene editing technology. And that may not mean something to a lot of people, but five years ago, the idea of that company was hard to fathom, that that could be a company. Mm -hmm. And I think things will move very quickly now, I hope so, uh, in a way that we'll have treatments to things that seemed untreatable before. So living to 100 is possible today? Oh, sure. What's, so what's the goal? If, so if you're gonna say the moon, is it 200, is it 500? So the goal that I would put out there, I think is, I would put before that is if you look around the world, or even San Francisco today, this area of the world, Silicon Valley, is great at disruption, innovation, invention, like words that are so overused that a lot of people get tired of hearing about them. The goal that I would set out doesn't have to do with those words. It has to do with distribution. Mm -hmm. The fact that, uh, that in this country, if you're a, uh, a white male, your average ex life expectancy is like maybe 77 or something mm -hmm. like that. If you live in Western Africa, your life expectancy is like 45 or 50. And so for me, the challenge I would put out is about distribution of our existing technologies, which we can do today. Like the seven deadliest diseases, many of those we can cure right now, or we can treat or prevent. And the fact that we're not making as much of an effort to do that, if, if I told you we could double lifespans in this country, like by snapping our fingers, you would say, well, we should do that. Well, we could double lifespan in lots of parts of the world, even in this country, just by distributing what we already have. So let's take Alzheimer's, for example. There have been 100 attempts to develop an Alzheimer's treatment since 1998, and all mm -hmm. of them have failed. Right. Um, at the same time, a successful treatment could be huge. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the breakthrough happening in age-related age disease? There are people who are spending their entire careers uh, uh, um, moving actual molecules and uh, and working in labs to develop treatments for something that has been untreatable. Uh, and that'll be a win for humanity when that happens. We have an understanding of how Alzheimer's uh, develops and how all neurodegenerative uh, conditions come about that, that 15, 20 years ago, when I was a neuroscience student, just it didn't exist. It wasn't even in the books. And now we have tools to peer inside even living brains. I mean, it was only 19... 30, that we had no antibiotics. You get a disease, you die. And then suddenly you get a disease and you take a pill 
and you live. Well, that's like kind of a miracle. I want to talk some about some specific companies like found Foundation Medicine, which is a company you guys backed, working on a personalized cancer treatment. They've been slow to get insurers to cover it. Some say there's still no viable product. What are the chances of Foundation actually finding the cure for cancer? Well, Foundation's goal, uh, when we invested, it was, when we invested, they came into pitch, and after the pitch, we all looked at each other and thought, is this even possible? Like, does the, is, is, will the technology get there? So what they're doing now was impossible at the time that they founded the company and were raising money. So the progress that they've made to date is so remarkable that it's, it's completely un, underappreciated uh, by uh, a lot of people, maybe even um, the market. Uh, they created a diagnostic to genotype tumors so that they could help physicians pick the best treatment modalities so that if you, so that we're treating your cancer. And if we all live long enough, we will all get cancer. We can treat your cancer, not what was the gold standard for this generic form of what we call lung cancer because it happens to be in your lungs. Uh, that's a huge step. Um, and will that lead to a cure? I mean, they say, well, there is a cure for cancer. It's early detection. Like, and so, uh, so the, it is a big step. And I will tell you, there are patients alive who would not be alive but for the foundation medicine test. Really? And that's really compelling. So in some cases, they did find a cure for cancer. Are there any areas of health where you just won't go, where technology just hasn't caught up to no. the need? No. Then there. how do you balance funding something that is impossible but maybe possible and really is impossible? Because if you go into it thinking, I can't lose money, I need to be correct, I need to be right, uh, then this is the wrong business for you. Is that the luxury of working at Google? No, it's not a luxury because if we always lose money, then we won't have a job anymore. So we go in optimistic that there's a cure for cancer, but skeptical of every approach. That's just science. And so we have bioengineers and physicians, et cetera, on the team uh, who spend their careers on this kind of thing. And, um, and so we're okay being wrong sometimes. We're even okay being wrong most of the time. And by the way, Google does give you as much money as you Want, right, and they you don't, don't have me, to fundraise. They don't give me GV, as much money as I want. Um, I wouldn't put it in those terms. I would say that uh, we're all trying to be rational. How much money can we reasonably invest and expect a, a good return? And we you don't have to fundraise, though, which we is kind fundraise. of a luxury. It's it saves probably a third of our time, which would be spent with LPs and raising money. Right. We can spend with the companies and on other things, which is a, which is a great uh, benefit for us. You once likened the fundraising of Secret, which is now defunct, to a bank heist. <laughs> and at the time... <laughs> You're getting all my best quotes. <laughs> it was taken as a very entrepreneur unfriendly comment, but since then the market's changed. And I wonder if you think the reaction would be the same if you said that today. I think it was an entrepreneur unfriendly comment. It probably wasn't like the nicest thing to say. And if you don't have something nice to say, you probably shouldn't say anything at all. But, you know, I know the founders and uh, that was a unique situation, and I think they learned something from it. it. You know, the investment obviously didn't work out, but they were onto something for a very short period of time that burned very brightly. Um, at the same time, they weren't dealing with sick patients. So the kinds of chances we take and um, uh, that entrepreneurs are willing to take in the tech world do not, should not work on the life science side. You have to be a lot more careful. The market's in the middle of a major reset. Mm -hmm. How do you think this plays out? 
there's like not a lot of upside in trying to predict the market, but since we're, you know, we're part of it, we have to kind of understand what's happening. Uh, we've tried to avoid investment opportunities that seemed overheated and try to work with founders that are trying to make reasonable deals uh, and, and find good investors. But someone once told me, you can pick your investor or you can pick your price. And what that means is, but you can't pick both. It's better to pick your investor in all scenarios because you want them to be there when things go wrong and they always go wrong. You invested in Uber at a what, $3 billion valuation? Some, somewhere in that facility. Now it's worth, valued at mm -hmm. $62.5 billion. Is Uber overheated? I mean, could they be? Someone suggested to me that Uber is next in store for a, a write down. Of course, I am completely biased. So anyone <laughs> right. watching this is gonna say, well, he's completely biased, and I am, but you have a, a, a transformational company. When we invested, there are a lot of people that questioned what are they doing? That's, and we pushed all in. We put in a lot of money. It's our largest investment. We put in, we have over $300 million invested in the company, which is the size of our entire fund at the time. I think all along at every stage of this company and many companies like this, people question, is it overpriced? Is it overpriced? They're doing something far more remarkable than we even thought when we invested. So I don't underestimate that team and the people that work there at all. That said, things with Uber did get a little complicated because Google's interested in maps, Uber's interested in maps, Google's doing self-driving cars, now Uber's doing self-driving cars. How are you navigating that relationship? We're investors in Uber, so that's mm -hmm. our responsibility, is to try and help them build as big, successful, and important, useful a company as possible. But now you guys compete. Um, we don't compete, we're the investors. You know, Tesla, Apple, everybody wants to be in cars and maps, and, and I think Travis was in it before it was um, really the hip thing to be in. And anytime you get companies that are the size of Uber and the importance of Apple, et cetera, they're gonna bump into one another. The last time you were on the show, you pledged to hire a woman general partner. That, that would be your next partner. What kind of progress have you made there? Well, we're not, uh, we're not hiring a partner right now, a general partner, but when we go to do that, we need to make a really deliberate effort to do it. There's, I wish there was something I could like drop in the water and mix and it solves this diversity problem, but, but there are other elements to it. Most boards are made up of white men. Most entrepreneurs that get funded by venture funds, like our, ours, are made up of white men. Most investing teams, like ours, are made up. And so this is a problem on several different uh, fronts. So we decided to deploy a Series A amount of money, roughly $5 million, uh, into something that we had never done before, uh, which was to invest in some other venture funds. So we invested in four venture funds that are not our own, and these are funds that are founded by people who are not white men, who see entrepreneurs that we wouldn't see otherwise. Would you be in favor of, and I don't want to call it affirmative action, but maybe it is affirmative action, but hiring a woman who checks maybe not all the boxes you need to be checked, you thought needed to be checked, but checks some other boxes, and like, taking a risk. By the way, someone. we do have a female general partner. Yes. Um, one reason Which is I, a, a right. one huge step further <laughs> right. than most VCs. Which is, <laughs> I don't like to point these things out. I've seen other people in other situations say, well, let me give you the numbers on our team. Yeah. And I think there's a de-individuation that goes along with that, that then makes that person this so-and-so, rather than, oh, but they're also a technologist, they're also an entrepreneur. But you have the power to change things. Right, which is why we're trying to do that. Uh, up until the alphabet change, there was a team at Google called Google for Entrepreneurs that 
was reported to me. It's uh, run by uh, Mary Grove uh, now. It's it's now been moved over to Google, and one of the mandates where where we and now they have invested many tens of millions of dollars is into Code 2040 and uh, other uh, incubators and accelerators that try to um, solve this problem from different angles. Because you, I ask myself, well, why aren't there many girls in you know, school age who become women, who are interested in technology, who become programmers? And so I only go to my own experience, mm -hmm. which is I grew up loving computer games. How many computer games are tailored to women rather than to men? How many people, how many of us, if we look at ourselves, buy a Star Wars Lego toy, but only for the boys and not for the girls? Um, why, when the toys came out for the Star Wars movie, everyone had an action figure except Rey, who was the female star of the movie? So rather than like point at other people and say, well, you could do better, you could do better, what we've been trying to do is look at ourselves say, well, what can we do differently? So I had our entire team undergo unconscious bias training, because all of us have these biases. Like, I'm guilty of it, too. My natural instinct would be, if I'm going to get a toy for a boy, it might be a Star Wars. So we're all guilty of that. And to try and correct those things, and to, uh, and to start those ways. And like I said, invest in other funds, and um, try and meet with entrepreneurs that we, that we wouldn't come on our radar, uh, uh, necessarily. And so yes, we do have the power to change it. Um, and many of us have failed. We've just done a bad job of it, um, which is okay. Like it's it's okay to say that. It doesn't like I would like to do better at it. So, what's your long-term vision for GV? Five years. Where do you want GV to be? The first thing that comes to mind is what I said earlier. If we invested in the companies that had the most positive impact for the largest number of patients, uh, um, that would make me really happy. I'd say. How about 50 years? Uh, 50 years, I hope I'm still around. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's hard to think that far out. Anytime I've thought, well, where will I be in three or five years, I've been so wrong. Um, Are you still going to be doing this? Uh, that is, I hope I'm around to find out. But I'm having a ton of fun, and it's mostly because of the people I get to work with. So uh, as long as that's the case, I think the answer is yes. All right. Bill Maris, GV President and CEO, thank, thank you. you. Next time on Studio 1.0, the former head of the National Security Agency, General Keith Alexander, who was running the NSA during the revelations of Edward Snowden. General Alexander tells me in this interview that he believes Europe is at risk for another major terror attack. This was before the attacks in Brussels. It is a sobering, chilling take on the current debate over safety and privacy. You can catch all our episodes at Bloomberg.com and on Bloomberg Television. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Emily Chang TV and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. This is Studio 1.0.